0: If you were here last week, you know we talked about the necessity of living life like you're dying if you were going to live life well. That if you didn't live life with the observation that it's got a terminus point, that it's short and it's brief, it doesn't last forever, you wouldn't be able to live well. We said live like you're dying in order to live well. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about a little uh, different way of living also, but in order to live well. This uh, theme this morning is a little less black and white. It requires more. Eric, does it matter where I stand? Is this okay? Um, It requires more thought on your part, frankly, more prayerful consideration and application. But this morning, I want to encourage you to consider living life like a tree, To live life like a tree, and by that I just mean choosing to live intentionally in the place God has put you with the people God has put you with. To live intentionally right where God has you with the people God has put you with If you look at our culture today, this is pretty much true in the church and in the larger culture. The church tends to be not very far behind the larger culture in many things, but certainly in this I think it's true also. We're a culture of commodities. Uh, We buy and sell. We trade up. We get new. We throw the old away. And there's nothing inherently wrong with buying and selling. But when you go to the New Testament, one of the things that Jesus said would be typical of the age before His return was this, that they're buying and selling. And again, the Lord's not saying buying and selling isn't something you need to do, but it's that life sort of rose no higher than seeing life as a series of commodity purchases. God was sort of out of the picture. So buying and selling sort of as a way of life, To rise no higher than that, it's a deficiency, but it's where I think this culture lives today. So we trade jobs, careers, cars, and houses. We also trade spouses and children. We throw away, we replace, we're a disposable culture. I think in general it would be safe to say we've lost a sense of the things that really value or the things that really matter. And so what I'm offering this morning is a consideration that there's another way to look at life that can help us live life well, to think of living life like a tree and to use this as a counterweight, if you will, to the thoughts we probably otherwise have about commodity-style living. In 1956, a local boy from Kansas who made it big, President Dwight Eisenhower, started the interstate highway system. And this was actually passed in legislation in the 40s, but because of World War II, the whole thing had been put on hold. But when Eisenhower came back from Germany specifically after World War II and the German Audubon, their interstate highway system, he was convinced that the U.S. needed the same thing. Primarily because we were entering the Cold War with the Soviets, we weren't sure what the future would hold as far as warfare went. So Eisenhower said, we really need, for our own defensive purposes, we need a highway system that we can move large numbers of people on quickly, as well as goods and, and uh, just the industrial uh, apparatus of war if we need to, if it comes to that. So in 1956, Ike started the highway system that we enjoy today. As a matter of fact, if you go just outside of town west of Topeka, you'll see a sign that says this was the first section of the interstate highway system paved, just going towards the Langhofer's estate. Um, Eisenhower um, literally paved the way towards what we would today consider kind of a very mobile, in some ways now very shallow, commodity-driven culture. Now, although Eisenhower was at the front end of developing part of the, the culture we have today that's uh, very big into lots of mobility and lots of options... Listen to what he said in a speech in his hometown of Abilene uh, after World War II. There was a large parade thrown for Ike. This is called his his barefoot boy speech. And listen to two paragraphs out of that speech. He said this, Because no man is really a man who has lost out of himself all of the boy, I want to speak first of the dreams of a barefoot boy. Frequently they are to be of a streetcar conductor or he sees himself... That's way back, isn't it? A streetcar conductor. Or he sees himself as the town policeman. Above all, he may reach to a position of locomotive engineer. That's as high as he can imagine. But always in his dreams is that day when he finally comes home, comes home to a welcome from his own hometown. Because today that dream of mine of 45 years or more ago has been realized beyond the wildest stretches of my own imagination, I come here first to thank you and to say the proudest thing I can claim is that I am from Abilene. He says later in the same speech, "...through this world it has been my fortune or misfortune to wander at considerable distance. Never has this town been outside my heart and memory. Here are some of my oldest and dearest friends. Here are men that helped me start my own career and help my son start his. Here are people that are lifelong friends of my mother and my late father." the really two great individuals of the Eisenhower family. They raised six boys, and they made sure that each had an upbringing at home and an education that equipped him to gain a respectable place in his own profession, and I think it's fair to say they all have. They and their families are the products of the loving care, labor, and work of my father and mother, just another average Abilene family. So consider this perspective. This is the guy who traveled the world. He led, I think, the single greatest military collection in history. He was the president of the United States for eight years. He began the interstate, one of the greatest travel systems in the world still today. And yet when he looked back on the things he cherished most in life, it was to the quiet, steady, plodding life to be found in a small Kansas town. I might have said it this way from another famous Kinsan of a the sort, there's no place like home. Now, you know, we look back, and frankly, the 50s, in at least if you're a baby boomer, the 50s are sort of seen as quaint. They're a throwback, a simpler way of life, less complicated way of life. In many ways, that's true. I also think, though, besides being quaint and simpler, and I think they were both, I think there's a sense, though, in which the values of the culture generally were healthier than they are today. And that people tended to value people and other things of intrinsic value more than they did commodities, as it were. And I think someplace between the 50s and today, this growing procession of trading and changing values to commodities has grown larger and larger, and along the way, the culture, and I think even we as Christians, have been losing our souls. I'm going to read a quote, too, this morning from James Hefley. You may not know him by name, but you've probably heard at least part of this short paragraph he wrote. It's typically known as One Solitary Life, but this is what Hefley wrote about the Lord Jesus. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman, He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying. That was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Such was his human life. He rises from the dead. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever were built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. And I just use Jesus as an example to say, you don't have to have upward mobility. You don't have to travel far and wide. You don't have to have any of the things the world counts as markers of success to live life well, and to live life in a way that God counts a success. The Lord Jesus certainly had none of those things, never traveled widely, wasn't into commodities, and yet certainly we would say, "Lived life well. I think in order for us in this culture, in this day, at this time, to live life well, we need to consider a different, slower, more intentional way of life that most of us need to at least consider living like a tree to consider that God has likely planted us in the place we are with the people we are with because that's where He wants us to thrive and to grow. I'm going to skip through some passages in both the Old and New Testaments briefly here. If you look in the Old Testament to see what kind of life did God count as successful and blessed, you'll generally see these three elements. The successful life seen in the Old Testament was this. It was lived in right relationship with God in the place of His choosing with the people doing the same thing. The successful life through most of the Old Testament is seen as living in right relationship with God in the place, the specific singular place that He had promised or provided with other people doing exactly the same thing. That was typical. That was the blessed life. Now, We know we're not Israel. We don't live under the old covenant, under the law. We don't live in the land of Palestine, the land of promise for the Jews in the Old Testament. We're part of the church. We have a different mandate, part of which includes the mandate to evangelize or carry the message of Christ to all the world. That requires, if you will, being uprooted and traveling to distant places to carry that message. That's part of the mandate of the church. But most of us, are not called to be foreign missionaries. I don't know what percentage that would be as a part of the body of Christ, but it's small. Most of us aren't inherently required to pick up and travel the world to live life successfully. And so for people in the Old Testament who knew I've got a short period of time on the earth, the successful life was one of right relationship with God in the singular place He'd provided for you, with the other people doing exactly the same thing. few verses out of the Old Testament along this line. Psalm 37, this is a psalm about the righteous looking at the wicked and wondering what gives, they're doing well, they've got all the good stuff, I'm doing right, and it doesn't look fair. And so part of Psalm 37 says this, verse 1 through 3, don't fret because of evildoers, don't envy the wrongdoers, don't worry about them and what they have. They will wither quickly like the grass. They're going to fade like the green herb. But you, instead, you trust in the Lord and do good. You dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Now, I love the comparison here. The wicked, those not in relationship with God, those not living life in order to please God, in the way God counts successful, the psalmist says they're like grass and weeds, they spring up quickly. But they have shallow roots, they dry out, and they die. They're they're short-term. They're transient. But you as those who are righteous by God's doing, you should do this. You should dwell in the land. You should stay right where God's planted you. And you should make faithfulness to God your objective. Stay where you're at. Do the things God's given you to do. Don't worry about the unrighteous and all the things they accumulate. They're not trees they're weeds. They grow up and they die. Scripture often paints believers or those in right relationship with God as trees. So, for instance, Psalm 1 verse 3 says, Of the person who's in God's word and is the wrong things in life, it says, Of that person he will be like a tree planted by streams of water, not a weed, not grass that comes up in a hurry, And dies in a hurry, but a tree. And he's by water. So there's always this source of abundant life. Or if you go to Psalm 92.12, you see the same thing. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. The righteous will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. In the ancient world, the cedars of Lebanon were kind of the epitome of abundance and wealth and prosperity. So when Solomon builds the temple, he does so with the cedars from Lebanon. So of the righteous, they're going to grow up like these stately, successful trees. And then last, Jeremiah 17, 8. Jeremiah is speaking of the person who trusts God instead of themselves or others. And he says this, He will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. So on one hand, the psalms say, those who are living apart from God, they may get this short-term gain, they may have lots of commodities in this life, upward mobility, options, etc. But the psalmist compares them to grass and weeds, short-lived, no lasting substance. The contrast to that is the righteous are going to be like trees. And not just tree that's substantial, but has deep roots, and also the tree that's by water, so that it has this abundant source for life. It has a supply of life right where it's been planted. If you go back further in the Old Testament to Genesis 11, uh, the descendants of Noah were told to fill the earth, to scatter and fill the earth. And they didn't want to. And they were afraid to actually. So, Genesis 11 verse 4, they said, "'Come, let us build for ourselves a city.'" and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, this all sounds fairly mundane and and without any great issues involved, but this was the deal. God knew that just like before the flood, people were going to turn evil after the flood. And people scattering over the earth was a way to slow the process of evil developing in mankind over time. So mankind instead says, no, no. We know there is strength in solidarity. So instead of scattering like God's told us to do, what we want to do is we want to stay together. We're going to build a city. We're going to stay together because we know in this kind of unity, there is strength and there are options and there are possibilities. And it's not that God was inherently against any of that. It's simply that because man was evil... He knew the development would be towards evil. It wouldn't be inherently good. So, what does God do to mankind that wants to stay together in their evil state? He curses them, He multiplies their language, and He scatters them. And this is the point I want to make. The ancients understood that to live a shallow, nomadic, sort of transitory life was a curse, it was a curse. And this is exactly the kind of lifestyle that we think is desirable today. See, we're disconnected from everybody else. We do our own thing. We do it our own way. I'm accountable to nobody else. I'm in it on my own. It's ironic. What the ancients knew was a curse from God, we embrace as a desirable lifestyle, this rootless, community-less living. Who's smart and who's not? We tend to look back and think we're smarter than people that lived before us. We're not. We're about the same. I think we're actually we're deteriorating more rapidly over time. Also, think of this. Along this same thought, the rugged individual in our culture, seen as the hero, John Wayne. Not to disparage John Wayne, the guy who stands on his own two feet. He does it all his own way. He uh, he can he's sufficient to himself. We think this is the hero. Guys in the scriptures, this is the anti hero. Just like Nimrod, the guy who built the Tower of Babel. It's the anti hero in the scriptures. This independent person that lives life their own way, on their own. This is not the hero, it's the anti hero. The heroes in the scriptures are the guys who plug into God in a relationship with Him and plug into the community of God and invest in that long term. Those are the heroes. That's typically not what our culture believes. We tend to refrain today from long-term commitments and tight-knit community because we see it as confining and small, and it limits our opportunities and our options, our commodity trading, if you will, when those at Babel even knew that it was that kind of community that actually provided the greatest opportunity, and the greatest options. Now, lest you mistake what I'm saying, I love options. And, and I'm thrilled that there's so much good stuff available in life. I'm, I'm for upward mobility. If you can have a better job and support your family, I'm, I'm all for these things. I'm not against these things inherently. I just think this. When we're trading up, when we're uprooting, We're moving to new digs and more exciting opportunities. We need to consider this. What are we giving up? What are we leaving? And what are we really gaining? You know, in this world, and especially in the wealthy West, there's a high gloss shine on lots of things, but little, if any, substance. And I just think routinely, like Esau again, we're trading our birthrights for porridge. And we think we're sharp and wise and prudent when we do it. And I don't think we are most of the time. Consider this. If you can leave a set of friends and suffer no meaningful loss, how much value were those friends at all? How valuable were you to them and how valuable were they to you. If you can trade friends like commodities, what are you saying about the value of those people? If you can trade friends and families and careers and jobs and communities and churches with little sense of loss, what are you really saying about the value of the people and the places you've been all along? What are we saying about the value of those people God's put in our life? I am totally convinced that we have become, in our own minds, commodity-driven. And that the people around us, instead of being fellow image-bearers of the omnipotent God, they're commodities. They're just things. We trade like we do anything else. Stereos, cars, and people. They're just commodities. We use them when it's convenient. We pitch them and get new ones when it's not. And guys, humanity and relationships do not work this way. They cannot work this way. We are more than commodities to each other. It takes time to gain trust and credibility with others. It takes consistency over years in order to be able to build into someone else's life and allow them to build into your life. These things do not happen quickly. And if they do, it's probably sham. There were studies in the past that have suggested in churches that it wasn't until a pastor had been in a church at least seven years that they started in quantifiable terms what would be considered their their greatest work, their most significant or lasting contribution. And it didn't matter how old the people were in the survey. In other words, it's not that in seven years they got smarter or better at what they did. It wasn't age-related was time-related. And so it suggested that even for a senior pastor in a given church, it would take up to seven years before the relationships had been established in that church that allowed him to be highly effective. It didn't happen before that. Many churches in the past had a model in which they would intentionally rotate pastors. And so it guaranteed that people never had time to develop the long-term relationships that would actually lead to blessing in both directions. So if you're going to have a significant impact on others generally, you're going to have to live like a tree. Where they invest in you and you invest in their lives, this takes time. There's no shortcuts to this. No shortcuts at all. In the New Testament, you've got all these calls to Christians to live with each other in a way that's beneficial. So for instance, Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, encourage one another and build up one another. My question becomes, how can you be devoted to each other? How can you build each other up if you're not in long-term relationships with others? It just simply does not happen. That's not the way we're wired. God values people and He values relationships. And He works primarily corporately, this being outside of His Spirit and His Word at work in us as individuals, He works generally through the relationships we have with other people. So, God may call you as a missionary. He might do that. Or He may require of you to uproot often in your life and go to new communities and new places and meet with new people, Because that's what it takes for God to use you in a way that honors Him and accomplishes His purposes for your life. But I'm convinced of this. That kind of call will not be true for most of us. And the question for me in a consumer commodity driven culture is this. Do I see life as an endless series of options and choices and commodities that I trade? Or do I see it as a response to God's call to grow and invest where He's planted me with the people He's planted me with? Come on, man. I think He's pinching her. So if we want to live well and if we want to live like those who are called by God with purpose and meaning in life, I'm just suggesting this morning I think we need to consider living life like a tree. In a passage in Isaiah 61, by the way, this is one Jesus quotes, I believe it's in Luke 4 in the New Testament, God told the Jews that there would be a future day of restoration when He restored them to the land of promise. And He said this, those restored Jews back in the place of promise and blessing, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. God says, these are my people, they're like oak trees that I'm planting. And they're going to put down roots, and they're going to grow up and out, and they're going to be a blessing, and they're going to glorify me. So my question for myself and for you this morning is this, where has God planted you? Where is he planted you? All of us have transitional periods in life, but as you look at your life right now, where you're at or where you think God may be calling you, where is God planting you today and for the foreseeable future? In your career, in your family relationships, in your church, in your neighborhood, literally in your neighborhood too? Where is God planting you? Joyce Kilmer said, Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. And God is still making trees today and He compares us to trees and He says, I've got purpose for you and I plant my trees where I want them. And I want you to take root, put those roots down and grow up and be a blessing. My wife Kathy has been listening to a book on tape and she pointed out to me a section that dealt with what is, as far as we know, the oldest singular living thing on the earth today is a bristlecone pine called Methuselah in the White Mountains of California. This tree is understood to be over 4,800 years old. There was actually a tree older than this, a few hundred miles away, a few hundred years older than this one. Now, if you hear the age, I mean, just the number, we don't get staggered by numbers anymore. Big numbers are so much a part of our life. But, you know, if you think historically, what does that mean? That means this tree was rooted and growing before Abraham walked the earth. That means this tree was 2,800 years old when Jesus was born on the earth. You know what I mean? Put it in historical perspective. The number is staggering. 4,800 years old. Now, that number is staggering in historical context. But if you see pictures of the tree, it's not that impressive, frankly. It's only about 30 feet tall. And it lives in a pretty inhospitable elevation. It's cold, it's windy, it's dry. It's got these bare, gnarly branches. It's pretty big around at the base. But generally, if you look at it, it's just not that impressive. It's got scars on its bark from lightning strikes. So on one hand, I mean, it's done well. By the way, it's also quite fruitful. puts out a few dozen pine cones every year. They took one of these just a few years ago and every seed in this pine cone sprouted, which normally is not the case at all. It's still fruitful. It's almost 5,000 years old. It's still having babies, so to speak. This is fairly amazing. This tree does have very thick, tough bark. Very thick, tough bark. Still bearing fruit in its old age. And I Just as a comparison. If you are going to be able to stay planted in the same place very long at all, whatever age you attain, you're going to have to have pretty thick skin, aren't you? Because you're going to have to forgive other people again and again and again. Because, of course, living together with other people in the same place over a long period of time, you get to know each other pretty well. Get to know your high points and your less than high points. You know, like the poor people porcupines that back up against each other. You know, you've got prickles and sharp spots in your life. And if you aren't thick-skinned, this doesn't work. And you know, frankly, um, I think one of the greatest signs of immaturity in Christians is this. You hurt my feelings, and I go away. You said something I didn't like, and I write you off. A friend said to me years ago, one of the greatest... Um, measures of maturity in a Christian is how does a person take criticism? You know, most Christians, you cannot criticize. If you say something that's offensive, they're out of there. If you're going to live long, successfully in the same place, if you're going to be a tree rooted and grounded in the same place for very long at all, you're going to have to develop a thick skin. You're going to have to forgive others regularly and often. And you're going to have to ask for forgiveness because... Just as others are doing that to you guys, the same thing works. You're doing it to others, whether you know it or not, whether they tell you or not. So a thick skin and humility is required, or we simply won't stay together long enough, planted in that common soil, in order to affect each other's lives. We just don't do it. It doesn't happen. Last, closing with a fictional account about another man from another small town, in the Christmas movie that gets played every season, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey it comes to this crisis in his life and he looks back over his life and he feels like it's all a failure. He's just embittered. Life has not turned out the way he thought it would or he wanted it to. He lives in an old drafty house. He's a banker living in an old drafty house while Mr. Potter lives in luxury and wealth, fellow banker in town. He works for the same broken down building and loan company his father did while his friend Sam Wainwright is a wealthy, successful, traveling businessman. And he's lived out all his days in the same small town of Bedford Falls instead of fulfilling his boyhood dreams of becoming a world traveler and an explorer with the National Geographic Society. But at the end of the movie, and of course the climax, when his Younger brother comes home as a war hero and toasts his older brother, he toasts his older brother George, the richest man in town. And guys, think of this. This was a Hollywood movie made about 50 years ago. Hollywood knew 50 years ago that a life of integrity lived in the same place over a long period of time for the benefit of others was a rich, successful, wonderful life indeed. How far we have come in 50 years that today a commodity rich life is seen as success and this as seen as failure. So when you're thinking about God's call on your life, where He's got you, what He wants you to be doing, who He wants you to be doing that with, just think about Offer it as a consideration just a balance on the other side of your equation and your thinking that He might want you to see a successful life as living like a tree. That He means you to be where you are with the people you're with. That He wants you to put down roots and invest in others and let others invest in you. And that living life well might be as simple as living like a tree. Let's pray. Father, it strikes me from the New Testament that the condition of the world, one of the conditions of the world when Jesus returns to a world totally at rebellion to you and your will is simply describing those who buy and sell, those who marry and give in marriage, Lord. No, No things that are inherently deficient, just that life rose no higher than commodities and trades. Father, we are often like that church in Revelation 3, Laodicea. We think we have real wealth and real value when we embrace the trinkets of this world, not realizing that we are, in all the ways that truly matter, poverty. Father, help us to take you seriously in your call on each one of our lives. Help us to gain a sense of where you're planting us with whom you're planting us, Lord. The benefit of plugging in long-term in a community of faith with others who can encourage us and with whom we can be encouraged. Father, help us to be like those Jews in a future day in Israel, oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord, Lord, both so that we can be blessed and so that you can be honored. In Jesus' name, amen.